0: Um, good morning. <laughs> I forgot to say that. Everybody, How's everybody doing? All right. Excellent. Good to hear it. I've been sick all week, so I'm hoping my voice is going to hold out. We'll see. Um, anyway, we're starting a new series today, uh, and we're calling it My Dearest Bride. I don't, if, if you've seen our um, weekly emails or the posts on Realm, um, and I mentioned it a couple weeks ago as well, we're going to be looking at um, the book of Revelation, which is the very last book of the Bible. If you want to turn to it, it's not hard to find. You just start at the back cover and go forward a few pages. Um, but that that book is a letter that's it's a love letter in a sense. It's a letter that's written from a bride or from a groom to his bride, but it's not an earthly groom to an earthly bride. It's it's Jesus, the cosmic bridegroom written to his bride the church and it's a letter that's written to people that are um, they've been established for some time they're 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 trying to live their lives after Jesus they're trying to learn what it's like to to, to be Christians in a non-christian society um, and they're struggling with that just like the Hebrews kind of were struggling with it and uh, and they they're struggling along the way and Jesus this is one of the only places, if not the only place, where we get Jesus' direct words to His people. And um, if, if you've been around it all this year, you know that our theme for this year has been that we are pursuing Jesus together. And so we want to hear our groom's words. We want to know what He has to say to us. We, we want to hear how He wants us to change. Um. And so we're going to be looking at these seven churches over the course of seven weeks and asking the question, um, what does Jesus, the great bridegroom, to say to us, his beloved? And I think it's going to be uh, challenging. Hopefully it's going to be encouraging. And um, I, I've just been praying my face off that God does some enormous changes in me and in us. So just to give you a little bit of background, the seven churches in Revelation we are going to be in chapters 2 and 3 over the next two uh, seven weeks. Uh, but these are all real historical churches in the first century. They're all in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And the first church that we're going to look at is the church of Ephesus. Now, what you need to know about Ephesus is that it was and is, it continues to be, a major city. In fact, in the first century the population was estimated to be somewhere around a million people, which was enormous in that day. And it was a, a, a capital in the Roman Empire. It was a local center for trade. It was incredibly important. Because the city was incredibly important, um, Paul and other Christians made it a focal point of the church's activity in that region. And and so um, Paul visits it several times. And what we learn about this church, it ends up being a letter in the New Testament. Um, and, and this would have been a, a, an, an, an ex- enormous example uh, to the city of Ephesus, but also to the region of what a faithful, believing, committed church should look like. Um, they were like the, the, the church that everybody else would have looked like and, and said, we want to be more like that church. I wish we had their doctrine. I wish we had their leaders. I wish we had the the people that they have to serve in the roles that they have. And it continued to be um, a very prominent uh, church for centuries. In fact, one of the great early church councils was held there in 431 A.D. Um, But as I was reading about the church in Ephesus, one incredibly odd thing came out. And that is, at least according to N.T. Wright, He comments that if you were to go to the city of Ephesus today, there is a single, visible, viable church community operating in that city. In fact, he says, if there are Christians in the city of Ephesus today, they're in hiding. Why? Why? I think we're about to find out the answer in Revelation 2, uh, verses 1-7. to To the angel I write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate people, that you have tested those who claim be apostles but are not and have found them false you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name grown weary against you you have forsaken the love you had at first how far you've fallen repent and do the things you did at first if you do not repent I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that's Jesus' letter. Jesus. I want to ask four kind of basic questions. This isn't going to be some like enormously theological uh, examination, but simple questions, okay? We can all kind of wrestle with these questions. What does Jesus see? What does Jesus want? Why do we hold that thing back from him? And how do we change? What does Jesus see? What does Jesus want? Why do we hold back? And how do we change? All right. What does Jesus see? Um, one of my sons, Anthony, our, our youngest, uh, had a soccer game yesterday. It was his second week playing for the little three-year-olds. Which, if you've been in, you know watching three-year-olds play soccer, it's absolutely hilarious because they all just run in a mass, you know, around the field. And um, one of the things that I'm noticing that he's doing, which he does all the time, and which all of our other kids uh, have done at one point or another. Is um, he'll be kicking the ball along, concentrating on what he's doing, and then all of a sudden he'll look up and look for me, and like, and then the ball's gone. But then he's like, hey, you know, and then he waves over at me, and then he looks back and like, oh, okay, I'm in a game, you know. Um, and then it goes on for a little bit, and then he look. It, it, so throughout the time, he's just he's he's wanting to make eye contact with me. He wants to make sure that I'm still paying attention, that I haven't lost focus on him. And um, all of my kids uh, still do that in some way. Ethan's been kind of into rock climbing recently. The first thing he does when he gets to the top of the wall and hits the button is he looks down with those dimples on his face and like, you know, just smiles at me. And I'm like, yeah, you did it again. You know, it's great. And Caleb, um, you know, he's into building things and into art, and he's always making something. He's like, watch how this works and check this out. And, you know, he, he wants to show me his creativity and his ingenuity. They um, want to notice that I notice. They, they, want to, they, they want me to pay attention. They want me to, to give approval to what they've accomplished or what they've done. They want to know that their dad still sees them. And have you grown up too much that you'd forgotten that feeling? Do you still remember what that's like to be a kid and want nothing more than to catch the eye of your parent or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, somebody who, who is significant in your eyes to gain their attention because they matter most to you. It's, it's, it's a human impulse. And the reason it's a human impulse is because we're created that way. That, that impulse to be noticed is, is worked into our DNA. All of us in our hearts want to be seen. We want to be recognized. We want to be known. Now here's the reason for that. Remember, verse 1 and 2 says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now the stars are God's messengers to the church. What he's saying is, I'm the one who sends um, you messages from from God. I'm the one who works among you. I'm I'm powerful over the creation itself. And the, the... Walking among the lampstands means that he; those are the seven churches. And he's saying, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm moving among you. I, what he's saying is, I'm, I'm the audience that matters most. And I'm the, the audience who always sees you. See, to, in response to the question, what does Jesus see? The answer is, he sees you. He sees you. And he knows you. And he knows your deeds, he says. And that's no small thing. So, so much of life can feel like you are fighting a battle and nobody understands. Even the people closest to you don't seem to get what you do and why you do it. And I just, I, Jesus knows he sees the hidden things that you do in his name. He sees the prayers of intercession as you drop to your knees on behalf of your family or your neighbors or your friends. He sees the times that you've chosen to do the difficult things in faith over the easy things that don't require it. He says, I, I, I see your acts of compassion i see the small conversations of encouragement that you have with one another i see the sacrificial giving every time you give to those in need i i see your patient love for your children and they don't see it but i do i know the anxiety that you feel as you share the gospel with coworkers I understand what it feels like to be misunderstood by your friends or your family or your boss because you're choosing now to live according to the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the American dream. I see it all. Do you realize that? That the cosmic creator and sustainer of the universe walks among us and sees you. He knows your deeds. I guess the question I want to ask you is, If that since that's true, are His eyes enough for you? Is His gaze sufficient for you? Or do you still need the eyes and the attention of other people? Is it enough for you to know that Jesus knows? That Jesus gives His approval? That Jesus has you have his attention that the, the recognition and the only recognition that you need are from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords now you might think to yourself uh, that's somewhat of a terrifying thought because you know if he's that amazing that majestic that grand what if he looks at me and he doesn't like what he sees you know what then what if my deeds aren't great what if he rejects me? And I would just remind you of Romans 8.31 which says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, and the implication is that He is, then who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not, al- al- how will he not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Do you hear that? He's for you. In, in fact, So for you that he gave up what was most precious to him. And because he's already given up his perfect for you, it means that he always sees you through the eyes of that perfection. Because Jesus is if you're in Christ, He's transferring his record to you. And so He doesn't primarily see you through the eyes of what you haven't done in His name. He sees you first and foremost through the eyes of what His Son did in your name. Which means you have nothing to fear. His is the approval that can never be taken away. His is the attention which will always remain on you. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. And that means that everything... Every, everything that you do in faith, that you do by the power of the Spirit, that you do according to the kingdom of God, He is cheering His head off for you. And every hardship that you experience for His name, He bears the weight of it too. Because He's bound Himself to you. Because He's your bridegroom. Now, that means that any kind of correction that he would give us is not to condemn us, but in fact it's to free us. It's to make us a better bride. And so Jesus does want to correct his bride, does he not? He, he, he wants a perfect bride. He, he wants a beautiful bride and he's committed over time to making us look more and more beautiful. In fact, it wouldn't be loving for him not to correct us. Like if he he was just like, you know, I I saved you, I made you new, and now I'm just kind of content with you sort of continuing to be exactly who you are, that wouldn't be a very loving thing to do, right? Because we're still bound by all kinds of things, even though we're free in him. So Jesus has some correcting to do, and, and he has some correcting to do of the church in Ephesus. Now, before we get to what that correction is, um, let's let's start on the positive side. Okay. Now you get to dialogue. This is one of our questions. But when Jesus looks at his bride in Ephesus, what are some of the things he sees? What's what's some of the things that he commends for? What's up? Yeah, perseverance. They they endure all kinds of hardships for His name. They've been faithful to Jesus. They haven't wandered away to other gods. They've been a faithful spouse. What else? Uh huh. Yeah, they've got some some things to show for their relationship with Jesus. Some ways that they have done good in the world. I'm, you know, they've. Had an impact on their city. People are taking notice of their witness. There, there are non-believers in the city. They're going. They're these crazy Christians over here, and they, they're doing good things over there, and they're helping people out, and they're getting noticed for it. What else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not okay with wickedness and sin. So when and when someone falls into that, they're not afraid to go up to somebody and say, "Hey, I, I just I want to point this out to you. I want to help you out of it. I want to I want to see you restored." You know, um, they won't they won't tolerate unholiness among their community. We don't tend to see that as a virtue, but Jesus seems to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They knew their Bibles well enough to know an imitation when they saw one. When someone came along and claimed certain things about who they were, they were able to read the Scriptures and know Jesus well enough to go, no, you're not of Him. You need to move along. These are good things, right? I mean, Jesus essentially commands them uh, for all of these things. Um, Their faithfulness, their endurance... It, this it seems like in a lot of ways this would be the model for a vibrant church should look like. In fact, I'm imagining this like if the other six churches were getting together and having a little powwow with Jesus, they'd all be telling Jesus like, "Yeah, we all kind of want to be more like the Ephesian church. Like they got great like leaders and servers, and you know they're really standing up for truth and they're calling people out, and it just seems like great things are happening over there. Man, I wish we were more like them." And Jesus goes, really? Because <laughs> we, you, you could read that list and go, Jesus, what more could you possibly want out of a bride than this? She, you know, she's faithful to you, she stood up for you, she's endured with you. So, Jesus, what do you want? And what's the answer? He wants love. See in pursuit of truth and endurance, they forgot about romance. They forgot what it's like to be in love. Now, I'm sure that the Ephesian church could have explained love. I'm sure that if you asked them to, they would have transferred the three different kinds of love from the Greek into English for you and explained exactly what each of them means and how they're different from one another. I'm sure that if you went to their website, they would have had a doctrinal statement about love, and, and the, the language would have been so eloquent, and we would have all been really impressed with it. But the truth is, there's a difference between knowing, having an intellectual knowledge about love, and falling in love. Those are two very different things. And what Jesus says in verse 4 is, I have this against you, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Now that word for so strong. It's the same word that's used in divorce proceedings. And Jesus is saying, look, even if you're out there experiencing the intimacy of me, it's like you've already filed the divorce papers. I I want nothing to do with a loveless marriage. I don't care if you've been faithful to me if, if we have to live under the same roof and you won't speak to me and you don't look at me and you, don't, you, don't, you aren't intimate with me. It makes no difference to me if you haven't gone underneath somebody else's roof if you continue to treat me like I'm your husband. I want the passion that we had at first. I don't just want works. I want your heart. Now, why is it that Jesus wants their love? Their affection? I mean, doesn't He want us to serve Him? Doesn't He want us to do good works? Doesn't He want us to stand up for truth? Yes, all those things. But I was thinking about it this way. Um, if you're in love with somebody, if you've just fallen for them completely... Um, what happens to you? Like in relationship to the other person. Like what are some of the changes that start to happen in you when you're in love? Let me ask that. You get to respond. What are some of the ways that you start to change towards that other person? Do you have to be forced to like spend time with them? No, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you you put their needs above your own. You put their desires and their wishes above your own. In fact, there's nothing that you won't do for a person that you're in love. You know, you'll, you'll walk 500 miles and you'll walk 500 more. <laughs> just to be the man who walked 1,000 miles to fall down at your door. I just dated myself there. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a reason why like when you songs, it's every one of them kind of goes the same way I'm not going to let anything stand in the way of me having you of serving you, delighting you you do anything for the person that you love what else is true? yeah 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 you'll Right, yeah. Yeah, and your parents are like, didn't you just see each other the night before? Why are you on the phone for four hours? And there's no logical answer to it, and you look like an idiot, but you don't care because there's nothing that you withhold from that person. You don't withhold your time, you don't withhold your stuff. Everything that's yours is there, and you want nothing more than to use every resource you have to please that person. I remember when I, when I proposed to Mandy, and I was a missionary with Campus Crusade for Christ, at the time, and so, which means I needed to raise all my support myself, and I was living in Philadelphia, and I was living off I think something like eighteen thousand dollars a year. And we went, and my, my friends and I went ring shopping, and um, you know I'm, I'm looking at the rings and different, and, you know I'm tr- trying to figure out what I can afford and. It wasn't much, <laughs> um, and and I, you know, went and I found the ring, you know, and and um, and I was just thinking to myself, like, I'm going to have to give up a major chunk of my income in order, like, I'm going to have to dig deep into sacrificially into my way I can live for the next six to twelve months. In order to do this, do you think I cared? No. Like, when can I have the ring? I didn't care because I knew what I was getting in in, as a result of that transaction. I didn't care how much things cost because I wanted her among everything, over and above everything. What else? Anything else? What's that? Okay, yeah, you don't see their faults and their flaws. You you see the the person that you're in love with. Now, there's some you know some danger to that because humans are very flawed, and we tend not to see those flaws until after we're married. And uh, <laughs> and uh, now we got you know we're working through those things and being sanctified over time. Here, the other things I was thinking about is that. Um, nothing matters to you outside of the opinion of that person. Like, you don't care what anybody thinks of you. You don't care that your parents think that you're crazy because you're talking on the phone for four hours. You just don't care. And you think, like, ah, you don't under- understand, you know? Um, I was going to tell this story, and I'm still going to tell it, but Mandy was supposed to be working today, and she got her schedule changed, and now she's here, and it's going to be a lot harder for me to... Say some of these things. I'm still going to say them. It's going to be hard for her too, but that's okay because I love her. <laughs> but um, early on, in our, it, when we were dating, um, just I mean, talking about you know, willing to be look to, to look foolish and not care. We were driving home from a date uh, in the city. We both lived in, in um, uh, kind of the manioc Roxborough area. And uh, we were driving along Kelly Drive. And I think we were listening to a song, um, either on a CD or, or something. But we ended up, like, pulling off of the road into, like, a deserted parking lot. I remember being like, one street light over the parking lot. And we just got out of the car and turned up the radio and started dancing in the parking lot while cars were driving by. <laughs> She's like, oh, my gosh, you're telling this story. <laughs> Um, and I didn't care what cars went by. Um, I didn't care if a police officer showed up and said you couldn't be here. Because uh, the only person, opinion that mattered to me was the person with whom I was dancing. I didn't care if I looked stupid or crazy because I was in with the one who loved me. When you think about Jesus wanting to be in love and him wanting us to, to to reciprocate that love the reason he's that we make him our first love is because when he's not your first love there's there's no amount of service there's no amount of church activity no amount of fellowship or... that are that are going to be able to to hold a candle to someone who's totally head over heels in love with Jesus that if you Discovered that love for him, or if if you, you've rediscovered that love for him, then everything else has a way of taking care. You can't help but serve him. You, you want nothing more than to give him. You you don't care if you look stupid. You just care about being near him. Yeah, I, I remember when I first fell in love with Jesus. Do you? Do you remember that season? I was 21 when I fell in love with Jesus. And I looked like I was out of my mind some days. I I remember I worked at a Jewish country club and I would share my faith like crazy with people there. Because I didn't care if I lost my job. People would ask me how I was doing, and I was telling Matthew this before, and I would say, I'm great every day. And the reason I said that I was because like I was you know circumstantially great every day, but because in my mind i'm thinking today is a day that I get to walk to work with my my the, the person who loves me more than anything like I, i've got Jesus and I don't care what else I have so yeah it's a great day and I would tell people this again and again and again, just hoping somebody would ask me well why why is that and then I would like in the most um Ungentle way, just like blurt out the gospel to them. <laughs> you know? And I remember being, um, out serving the country club members at one point, and this guy comes through the line, and I said, How are you? And he, how are you? And I said, Great every day. And he looks at me, he goes, You must know Jesus as your personal savior. And I, like, in the middle of the country club, I go, I do! <laughs> Do you too? Like, I was so excited. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> I didn't care. I, I would be late for work. Not because I ran into traffic or because I didn't leave the house on time. I was, I was listening to a certain worship song and it didn't end when I got to the parking lot. And I just had to sing my heart out. And I'd walk it's minutes late with tears in my eyes. I remember I, I my roommate had a an, an extra guitar and I'm a lefty and he's not so I learned how to restring a guitar upside down and chords on the guitar just so I could one song unashamed love again and again until my fingers bled. Lord God's and would you just please is, you know. And I probably sounded so immature. I remember staying up until 2 a.m. some mornings just reading the Bible. because My pastor preached about Jesus and his love for us and I would weep with joy because I couldn't imagine that God was that good. I remember um, one time uh, riding my bike down to the Schuylkill River in order to read my Bible, and uh, I found a bench finally, and I sat down, and like 30 seconds after I sat there, it started pouring rain, and I'm sitting there with my Bible going, like, what the heck? Like, I'm now like five miles away from my house, and it's just a downpour, so I put everything back in my my backpack, and I get back on my bike, and I'm riding back, and as I'm riding back, I see that there's a car that's um, disabled on the side of the and there's a guy there struggling to get the wheel off of his uh, car. And so I'm like, okay, this is why I'm here, you know. So I, I stop, and the two of us wrestle the wheel off, and we get the other one on, and we tighten it up. And he, he goes, don't go wear, I, I, And he runs into his car, and he comes back, and he's trying to, like, throw money into my hand. And I remember saying to him, like, no, I'm, I, I'm, I don't want your money, you know. Uh, and I was dirt poor at the time. <laughs> and I and I remember saying, um, you don't need to pay me. Jesus sent me here. He wants you to know that he loves you. And I got on my bike and I was riding back to my house and I remember thinking to myself, did I just say that? <laughs> I was just so thankful that I got to love someone in his name that day. Do you remember what it was like to be head over heels with Jesus? Do you remember what it was like to love Him so much that you just had to pour it out on other people around you? Do you remember how foolish you were and how immature you were and how much you didn't care? If you're like me, you're probably saying, yes, I remember, but it's not the same anymore. And I just want to inspect hard and ask why why have you you had it where did it go um, after that roadside dance uh, I officiated a wedding for a of a friend of mine who happens to be a pastor. We did the wedding. It's a Filipino uh, family, great family, great church, and uh, great group of friends and uh, young people. And at the the reception afterwards, um, there's kind of a group of pastors there, but there's a lot of young people. And I remember them all like just having a great time and dancing, and and uh, but the pastors weren't. They were all kind of sitting over in the corner, uh, chatting. And uh, headlines. And I could kind of sense the whole night that Mandy wanted me to dance with her, but I never did. It just it, it seemed like I should be around the pastors. and we were discussing family and ministry and things that seemed like... I mean I was thinking to myself, pastors, don't like this. you know we have reputations here as I was thinking about these two incidents and and just going what happened to the guy who would dance on the side of a street you know who just didn't care anymore because I was with my brother and I realized I that I had it first and Jesus says to us consider how far you've fallen and do the things you That you used to worship Jesus that seems so childish to you now. His bride. Please turn around, You're grown old in your faith, first, and think about the way that you loved me at first. You have to be aware of how dangerous it is for us to think that we're doing good things in Jesus' name, whether that's reading our Bible praying or sharing our faith or standing up for the truth, being generous to peace and loss, all these good things, but we're so busy doing the work of the ministry that we've forgotten what, what it's like to have a romance relationship with Jesus Himself. Have you become so proper, so respectable, so sophisticated that you've forgotten the childish do-anything-for-the-love that you had at first? So go back. Because if we don't repent, Jesus says, I'm going to come and remove my lampstand from its place. If we don't have this a romance kind of love for Jesus that's pouring out onto other people, there's no light there. We might be doing good things, but there's no light. And if there's no light, there's no reason for a light stand. And so Jesus goes, I might as well take this away. I want you to hear, Jesus wants His bride back. He wants us to be, He He wants to be the one who turns our heads. He wants to be the one who causes your heart to race when you think about Him who because you love him would give anything and go anywhere and love anyone because you're enraptured by him and you want to too. The reason this whole like idea of dancing came up is because I realized how often dancing is associated with love. Um, and our our community group was reading Luke 15 this week. And uh, we were reading the story of the, the lost or the prodigal son. And uh, when, when the son and the father are reunited again, the father throws him a party. It's not just like one of those parties where everyone's eating like in the corner, you know, like hors d'oeuvres, and they just, you know, there's music going on, but everyone's just kind of like chill. No, it's when the, brother, when the older brother who was in the field, he was outside of the party, and it says when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Music and dancing. It was a celebration happening. And everyone was going crazy because of the son we had come home. And it's a picture of what it it looks like. The father says to, to, to the older son, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We had to. His love for me and my love for him couldn't contain itself; it had to to burst forth and dance. There's another that in Second Samuel six, right, uh, where King David back into the 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 city with covenant, having um, kind of God has just given them victory. And he's returned the the Ark of the Lord to them, which means his presence was going to be in the city now. And it says in verse 16 of uh, 2 Samuel 6 that as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, who is David's wife, daughter of Saul, from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. He was leaping and dancing, literally like tearing his clothes off. He was totally... God was with them. And he says to um, when he lets him know of her disgust. I celebrate the glory of the Lord. Like, you're not going to stop me. I will become even more undignified, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He goes, you, you think a king isn't supposed to act this way? You just, just wait around because it's going to get crazy. <laughs> you know? That... These are pictures of the excitement kind of looks just dance before the Lord to let your, your heart reconnect with Him to, be, to not care what anyone else is thinking. But there's always, at least in our minds, a McCall out there or an older brother out there who we're concerned is kind of giving their disapproval to our love, Right? I was thinking about this. The reason I think I was too afraid to dance with my wife, I was too afraid of what people might think of me. In other words, I was looking in the room at my bride. And I think that I don't kind of dance with Jesus, let myself just be immature and in love with him to myself like what if they scorn me like this? what if they look down on me like the older brother think I'm concerned with other people might you know what other people might think is because i've been those people before i've been my face to the point where i've looked down on other for the doctrine and look down on people for what songs they sing or how they sing them. I I've been the older brother. I've been the scornful wife. And maybe you have. And if that's the case, God's forgiveness for looking down on those that have them to dance and to love and to give to Jesus with all their heart. I come. Have you grown so dignified unwilling to be called a fool for Jesus? And if so, you've forsaken your groom. Now that should break your heart. As I was thinking about it, it broke my heart that I've allowed that to happen. But you also need to be encouraged. As verse 7 says, he has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the very last verse. The reason that Jesus is saying that is because He wants His bride back. The groom isn't finished with you as His bride. He, he, he wants you to return back His arms. He wants to restore the love that you had for Him at first. He wants you to hear his voice again. And he's calling out to you. Do you sense him? Now, here's that last question What does Jesus see? He sees us. What does Jesus want? He wants us. Why do we give it to him? Because we're looking at other things, not him. So, how do we change? How do you give Jesus the thing that he wants the most? And that happens, I think, in verse 5, when when Jesus Himself says, Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you've done. Do you know that? that word consider is remember. Remember. Jesus is like sitting on the couch with your wedding album open. And he's saying, Come sit with me. And let's look at the picture. And let's remember the times together. I want you to remember me. Remembering is like the crucial act when it comes to worship. I don't know if you know that. Uh, in fact, Jesus tells the story of two people that borrow money from a, a manager, and they have two debts uh, to pay back, and one has a very small debt to pay. And the other one has an enormous debt to pay. And he says, I forgive you both. And Jesus asks the question, who will love the manager more? The answer that the disciples give is the one who's had the great debt forgiven. How great their debt was and how great their Savior was to forgive that debt if you're having a hard time kind of thing with the passion that you had for Jesus then may i suggest that that might have started with you forgetting how great your debt was and how he completely wiped it away because i one of the things i've found as i've grown in my my faith and grown in my walk and been a believer now for almost two decades is you start to forget how in need of forgiveness you were. And you start to think that what you've done in His name rather than what He's done for you. And so remember the love that Jesus had for you at first. Remember that while you were still a sinner, He gave His own life for you and He you with His own blood to make you shine before Him like a star. And He called you by name and He put His Spirit in you and He promised never to leave you and never to divorce you. Remember how He wooed you to Himself and made you new. The debt He forgave you. And remember how He showed His love to you first. Have you forgotten the debt? The second thing that I think we have to remember... Is that Jesus' love has never grown cold for you? You may have changed, and I changed, but but Jesus has never changed. His passion has never died, his affection has never waned. You are still the beauty that you've always been to him. His pulse quickens when he thinks about you, and his eyes widen when you walk into a room. Over heels. You and it's never changed. It's never grown old. See, if you're unwilling or unable to dance before Him, then that probably means you've forgotten Him. But but it also means that the way that you get back to Him is by remembering the one that you dance for. Jesus is calling you back, family. He's calling you out onto the floor. The celebration is set. and he wants back he, he, he wants you to experience the freedom that you once had when you were just lost in his presence do what you did at first remember who he was at first remember how, how all those different I was going back and like replaying songs that were like just huge to me when I first came to not because I think the this can spark it back but it's just like God put me in that state of mind again where I just I was so crazy about you. So we have to remember. Remember our debt. He still loves us and remember the first thing love. It's time to dance. It's time to become like David and that lost and to remember the love that you had at first. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your love for us has never grown cold or old, it's never gone away. diminished, you're still the crazy, passionate, sacrificial, pursuing bridegroom you've always been. God, help us to consider how far we've fallen if we've fallen out of love with you. And help us to remember... Help us to fix our eyes on you and to not look around the room, to not care what our boss thinks or our parents think or our siblings think or our friends or our neighbors or our coworkers. Help our eyes to be on you and you alone. And as we look at you and we see in response your eyes filled with fire and tears for us, would our hearts melt, God? Would you melt them so that we'd say yes to you again? Without that, God, nothing matters. But with it, God, everything, everything is meaningful. Thank you, in Jesus' name.